Good morning. As always, very good to be with you again to fill in as needed. It's my privilege and pleasure to do that. Uh, this morning's text is 1 Thessalonians 3, <clears throat> 6 through 13. 1 Thessalonians 3, 6 through 13. This is the word of God. But now that Timothy has come to us from you and has brought us the good news of your faith and love and reported that you always remember us kindly and long to see us as we long to see you, for this reason, brothers, in all our distress and affliction, we have been comforted about you through your faith. For now we live, if you're standing faith fast in the Lord. For what thanksgiving can we return to God for you, for all the joy that we feel for your sake before our God, as we pray most earnestly day and night that we may see you face to face and supply what is lacking in your faith. And now may our God and Father himself and our Lord Jesus direct our way to you, and may the Lord make you increase and abound in love for one another and for all as we do for you, so that he may establish your hearts blameless in holiness before our God and Father in the coming of our Lord Jesus with all his saints. Let's pray. Thank you, Father, for your grace and mercy to us. Our minds and our hearts <clears throat> and our Bibles are open before you now, and so would you please lead us, O thou great Jehovah, in Jesus' name, amen. Well, last week, John finished our series on who we are, who are we as a church and a people, and next week he's going to begin a new series. And this morning, I'd like to add a little bit more to the previous series. This morning's topic is what constitutes real life, real living? What is really living for you? Because of the series before, now that we know better who we are and that we are to worship and love and serve, how do we live? The title this morning is Get a Life. Sorry, that's a little snarky, but uh, that's a phrase we use uh, when we hear someone say something uh, empty or trite. Oh, come on, you can't be serious about that. Get a life. Suppose I were to say to you, for example, last week I had an amazing experience. And you say, really, what? And I say, I cleared all the levels of angry birds <laughs> or a candy crush or something like that. And you would rightly say, wow, Dave, get a life, man. If you don't know what angry birds and candy crush are, ask your kids or grandkids. But there are far more significant things in life, are there not? A much more significant example was going to our daughter's graduation from nursing school after a long, hard go of it, or maybe paying off the student loans from school, or maybe paying off a 30-year mortgage. Now, certainly those things would not be met with saying, get a life. Well, today, 
through the Apostle Paul, we hear how God himself defines really living. And it's a whole lot more than paying off your mortgage. Uh, for you outline people, my rough outline is number one, point one is Timothy's report of the gospel prospering and thriving among them. Uh, secondly, we look at Paul's response to that report. And thirdly, we will see how those two things logically lead to the day of the Lord, the end of all time. Verse 8, in the middle of our text, says, For now we really live. Now we really live since you are standing firm in the Lord. So here a true life is defined by being in a settled, solid, trusting relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, Paul's perspective, that perspective on living, is the direct opposite of modern unbelieving hedonists that he has described in another book, 1 Corinthians 15:32, uh, which says, let us eat and drink for tomorrow we die. Hedonism is the lifestyle that says there's no accountability before anyone except me. I answer to no one. Uh, so I'm going to live for maximum pleasure right now. They would say that death is merely the end of this life. There's no God. There's no afterlife. There's no punishment. There's no reward. No nothing. Death is no more than just turning off a TV set. It just goes to a blank screen and, there, <clears throat> and there's nothing more. And so they would say, since today is all that matters, you should maximize your pleasure and comfort right now. Put all your eggs in the basket called today. You might remember, uh, it's been a good while as I was thinking about this, but you might remember a beer commercial on TV uh, years ago. It's about a bunch of guys who are on a vacation trip fishing and canoeing down a beautiful river somewhere out west. Evening is coming and they've set up camp down on a scenic sandbar at a turn in the river. There's this stunning sunset. They're sitting around the fire in lawn chairs and they're eating freshly caught grilled fish and they're drinking ice cold old Milwaukee beer. And one guy turns to another and he says, you know, it doesn't get any better than this. My seminary professor at the time said when he saw that, he raised up out of his chair and spoke directly to his TV set and he said, oh, but it does. <laughs> to know and be known by the Lord Jesus is far better, far more than we can ask or think, such that it causes Paul in verse 11 and following to break forth into one of the great benedictions of the scriptures. Now, benedictions usually come at the end of a Bible book, but here he can't wait when he hears Timothy's report, and so he interrupts himself, as it were, with his benediction because he's so thrilled. We'll end our service today with this benediction, but for now, let's look back at verse 6 
and see what leads up to Paul and his description of really living. He's writing to the church. So we should realize it isn't just unbelieving hedonists who think this way, meaning these mistaken thoughts about what constitutes real living. Paul, by speaking to the church, is implying that that kind of thinking has possibly infected the church too such that he has to remind them of it here. And we didn't read it, but verse 5, just before our section says, Paul says he was afraid that in some way the tempter, Satan, might have tempted you and our efforts might have been in vain, might have been useless. Well, today we see in verse 6 that Paul's concerns have been joyfully, joyously put to rest when he heard Timothy's report. So he says, Timothy has just now come to us from you and brought the good news about your faith and your love. So let's not miss it. Here's another example of the fact that the gospel is for believers too. It says, Timothy has brought good news. And that's the very same word to as is used to evangelize, to express spreading the gospel. It means to announce the gospel. So why would he announce the gospel to people who had already responded in faith to the gospel? And I first became aware of this concept of the gospel not just being for unbelievers years ago, in something called the Sonship Course. You don't have to take the Sonship Course to find this out, but that course helped me very much. And I knew well that believing the gospel was the way that people become Christians, that is, believing they're sinners and unable to save themselves, and then they place their faith in Christ's life, death, and resurrection, and that's how one is saved. I knew that. But I had somehow come to believe, along with lots of others in the church that I attended, that while that was the way you got into the kingdom, once you were in, somehow you shifted to other things to stay in. And I was taught that things like uh, more and better Bible study, uh, going to church, praying, discipleship, giving, especially to missions, acts of sacrificial service to others, going to conferences, certainly going to and maybe even teaching Sunday school were the things that kept you in the kingdom. And maybe we could lump all of that stuff together and just say trying to do good is what keeps you in. All those things are valued and many are actually commanded in the scriptures Christians should be involved in such things. And by the way, those are just the good things that we should be doing. There's a whole lot more bad things that we're commanded that we should not be doing that we could add to that performance list. So I got as busy as I could doing right things and not doing wrong things in order to stay in the kingdom of God. Yes, Jesus got me in, but I thought it was up to me to stay in. 
But then in that course, the Sonship course, I learned what Colossians 2.6 and many other places say, but in Colossians 2.6, I don't know why I never saw it before, it says, as you received Christ Jesus, so walk in him. As you came in, continue to walk in him. And just before saying that in Colossians 2.6, he prefaces that by talking about understanding the riches of this mystery, which is hidden in Christ, and he says it's masked over, hidden, covered by what he calls fine-sounding arguments. So, human reasoning, however appealing and however clever it might be, human reasoning, which says doing good things and avoiding bad things is what earns God's favor and keeps you in the kingdom, is a lie from the devil. He says this rich mystery of being in Christ and staying in the gospel needs to be discovered. And it's that being in Christ is what saves you. Yes, on the day of your conversion, but that very same thing is what also keeps you saved. In other words, Paul's saying it's possible you've missed something big being snookered by a clever human argument, but how happy he is that Timothy has found that the Thessalonians understand this. So Paul is not saying, just as you receive Christ Jesus as Lord, now I want you to stay in by doing all those Christian things. No. He says, instead, continue in him, to live in him, in him, in faith in believing the gospel, which is the way I first came to Christ, and overflowing with thanksgiving, because it keeps me in. So it's hearing and understanding that acceptance by God is all due to Christ's work, not yours. It's all his work and none of mine that keeps me in the kingdom. I don't add anything to Christ's work on my behalf. And in my life as a Christian at that time, I was not overflowing with thanks, thankfulness. I was tired, so tired of doing all those things as a means of keeping God's favor. I felt that even on my best day of performing good and avoiding evil, that I was still a court low. I just didn't measure up. I had fallen into what I just referred to in Colossians 2, which refers to this hollow and deceptive philosophy that one stays in God's favor by performing good Christian works and duty. That is depending on the basic principles of this world rather than on Christ. This world tells you, doesn't it, at every turn that it is your behavior and your performance that makes you a good person. I was very close to the gospel, but still far from it in this sense. So what a revelation this was to me. No wonder I was tired. Verse 9 was and still is music to my ears. For in Christ, in Christ, not your church performance, in Christ, all the fullness of deity dwells, lives. And I and you have been given, given, 
this gift. We have been given the fullness of Christ. And I thought I had to earn it. How freeing it was to find out that because of Christ's work on my behalf, my daily Christian life was as much of a gift from God as was the gift of my initial eye-opening salvation. So back in 1 Thessalonians 3, 6, Timothy has just now come and brought this good news about their faith. And Paul's point here is that the news of the gospel of grace continues to have effect through the, throughout the Christian's life, not just when they first accept it. This harks back to the beginning of the book, 1 Thessalonians, in 1 Thessalonians 1, 3, the third verse of the whole book says, remembering before our God and Father your work of faith and labor of love and steadfastness of hope in Christ. Did you hear the three main Christian virtues mentioned? Remembering before our God and Father your work of faith and labor of love and steadfastness of hope. Faith, love, and hope. And he's trying to say here, notice they're not just once on the day of your conversion. You continue to believe gospel facts and grow, and that's an ongoing faith that Jesus died for and lived again for sinners in their place as payment for sin and giving them, them us a righteousness they didn't deserve and could never earn by any amount of church duty and Christian work. And that continues to be truly hopeful good news. And that leads to loving others. It's how we are to live now from John's series before. If it isn't still good news to you about the gospel, it's possible you've switched to another gospel, as Paul says in Galatians 1.6, which says, I am astonished that you Galatians have so quickly switched to another gospel, one of Christian good works and duty. He, in some translations even say, someone has bewitched you, if you think that. I don't know if you've heard, Galatians has been called Paul's angriest book. He is so upset to no end to find out that people who accepted salvation by free grace would switch back to moral good works as a way to stay in God's grace and favor. So here, in our text this morning, Paul is so excited to hear of their faith and love. And when he says he longs to see them, that implies that third major Christian virtue, which is hope. So the key phrase, the main idea we started with today, that of really living, is what he uses to describe in verse, in verse 6. It's the idea of the good news prospering, thriving, fueling lives of believers. This is what excites Paul so much. Notice something, I don't know if you saw it, it was a little different uh, in verse 7, might seem out of place. He mentions distress and affliction or persecution. Might not be obvious to us right off, but this is a clear reference found this in a commentary. I, had, I didn't see it. Um, <clears throat> it might not be obvious, but it's a clear reference to Zephaniah 1, 14 and following. Uh, just listen. I'll read two verses. 
Zephaniah 1, 14 and 15. The great day of the Lord is near, near and hastening fast. The sound of the day of the Lord is bitter. The mighty man cries aloud there. A day of wrath is that day. Here's our phrase. A day of distress and anguish. And he goes on, a day of ruin and devastation, a day of darkness and gloom, a day of clouds and thick darkness, all obviously referring to the end, to the day of the Lord. And, and you can hear the connection with our text, <clears throat> which is another one of the great themes of First and Second Thessalonians, which is the day of the Lord. Zephaniah 1.15 uses that phrase, day of distress and anguish. Our phrase here is in our distress and affliction they would have caught that connection likely. So in Paul's mind, here in our text this morning, there is a link to the day of the Lord. The day of the Lord was prophesied first and foremost to Israel, but here Paul, Paul continues to really live, to get a life, by taking the good news of the gospel of grace in Christ beyond Israel to the Gentile world. I think we're all Gentiles here. This is good news. It came to us. It thrilled him so much that Gentile Thessalonian converts are continuing in their faith, the same faith. It thrilled him immensely that the gospel was working for Gentiles too. Paul's own salvation isn't merely what he experienced on the Damascus Road, it's an ongoing condition in his mind, a continuing reality that is strengthened and bolstered by hearing uh, Timothy's report of their growing life in Christ too. So we should, we should mark it well again this morning, today, this new life in Christ is amazingly, astoundingly, eternally powerful. Have you forgotten that? If you look ahead in our uh, First Thessalonians here, uh, all the way to chapter 5, verse 10, he shows just how powerful it is. Here, here is First Thessalonians 5, 10. Christ died for us so that whether we are awake or asleep, whether we are awake or asleep, we may live together with him. That's another reminder to me that it isn't my effort that keeps me in God's favor. How so? Well, if it was my effort, I would despair every night when I went to bed because my efforts would lapse for six or seven hours during sleep and I would wake up in a panic and have to get back to it and make up for all that lost time. It would take a lot of effort if the goal was for us alone to please God, but no, the scriptures say, whether we are awake or asleep, whether we are actively aware of it or not, whether we are trying hard or sound asleep, we still live together with him. And if that's the case, and it is, it must depend on someone else. That's good news. So no wonder back in our text 3 uh, verse 9, he says, I can't thank God enough for this. 
The fact that the Thessalonians are standing firm is due to the Lord's powerful and gracious work in their lives. And that, that phrase in verse 9 uh, in the ESV that I'm reading, the, the phrase is, for all the joy we feel. And different translations try to translate that. It's awkward to take it from the original into English. The literal, I'm told, the literal uh, reading of that is the joy with which we rejoice. Awkward English, but Paul is expressing joy upon joy, heaped up joy, compounded joy in seeing this evidence of gospel faith in young believers at Thessalonica. And the idea there in that part of our text is that it's gone full circle. He's thanking God in return for the joy that we have in, in him due to what he did in you. <laughs> it's from God back to God in thanksgiving. Instead of being selfish and keeping it to themselves, their joy goes outward. That's how biblical joy works. I was reminded about this privilege that prayer is, that when he says, I'm so thankful to God, that is a prayer. I was reminded of that uh, a while back when I heard from a pastor friend who is involved in church planting uh, back in South Carolina, where we're from. He told about meeting with a young family that had no Bible or gospel or church experience whatsoever. And during their time together, the little girl in the family said, uh, the, the, my pastor friend mentioned the word prayer, and the little girl in the family said, what's prayer? Well, that astounded me on two levels, two fronts. First, and Ed's report about how about churches closing and secularized uh, community. For, that's the first thing that shocked me was that we have become so secularized as a society that it's very possible to live in a normal family setting so divorced from faith and Christ and God and the Bible that you don't even know what prayer is. So what, what Ed was talking about, for years now, uh, forces in this country have been at work to systematically eradicate God from daily life. I heard uh, a while ago about a new twist in the motion picture rating system. You know what that is, G, general, PG, parental guidance, R, restricted for mature themes, things like drug use, smoking, language, sex. And I forget the exact wording, but I saw this, and I haven't seen it since, and I'm still trying to find it again. But it said in this new rating system, it warned against, best I can remember, strong Christian evangelistic moralistic scenes. We have to be warned. It's gotten so bad that Christianity has to be warned against because, at least in the minds of those raiders, movie raiders, it's harmful, like smoking or drugs or sex. So, back to my church planter friend, no real wonder that that church planter who was trying to reach unchurched families finds a little girl who was raised in such a way 
that she would say, what's prayer? So he answered her and he said, it's talking to God. And she was mildly shocked and she said, I didn't know you could do that. Well, that brings me to the second reason for her comment being astounded to me. It's easy, isn't it? Easy enough to blame our godless society, but it made me realize how ho-hum prayer had become to me. I had gotten so used to the privilege that it didn't thrill me anymore. Uh, lately, I've been learning about returning to my first love. But think about it again this morning, how utterly amazing it is that, be, that we can talk to God himself. What a thought. Because of the person and work of Christ, the way of access to God the Father, creator, author of our salvation, that has been made wide open to us. And I said earlier how prayer was one of those Christian duties or works that I was supposed to perform such that God would love me more. But here, now we see, here it is in its proper light, a great privilege, a means of grace from God, a gift by which he keeps us close to himself. So our text this morning uh, ends with verse 13 where he asks that their hearts be strengthened in light of the second coming. And he's going to flesh that out a lot more in chapters 4 and 5 when he expands more on the end times, the coming day of the Lord, and you can read about that <clears throat> later on your own. But now, for now, very briefly, the day of the Lord is when all history is brought to a close by Jesus himself, and it's coming sooner than you think, like a thief in the night, as Jesus says. We see here that Jesus is the ultimate prophet because he came the first time to tell us this is coming. He came as the ultimate priest to make atonement for our sins. And on that great day, in the end, he will come again as our reigning king, prophet, priest, and king. And Paul has all of that in view, I think, as he hears Timothy's good report and the resulting joy naturally enough causes him to pronounce a benediction that links it all together, culminating with the end times, the day of the Lord. Paul's general line of thinking in this passage is that he hears the good report that people are believing in living the gospel and that causes them joy upon joy because it means they are on a track that leads directly, yes, even through pain and suffering, to the return of Christ himself. They're right on track, really living. One last quick point of application, Timothy's good report does not make Paul complacent. He could have heard the report and he could have said, okay, good, that's done, um, it's over now with the Thessalonians, I can go on somewhere else. Rather, it fuels his desire all the more to help them grow further. The fact that they responded this way this far, thus far means they are ripe for more. Strike while the iron is hot, as the saying goes. A hot glowing iron is in a condition to be molded by the hammer into something useful for the kingdom of God. And so 
when believers are open and tender to the things of God, we should perk up and we should work with them. And when they're cold and complacent and already set, not so much. So, to close, we end all of this by saying, Paul is so excited, brimming with joy, he's really living as he sees the Thessalonians trying to live Christian lives by standing firm in the gospel of grace. So, get a life. This one. Let's pray. Father, we confess that sometimes our lives don't reflect the gospel and are not marked with joy. And we rarely look forward to the day of the Lord. But now, in the light of your words through Paul to the Thessalonians and to us today, we reject those wrong ideas. And as best we're able, we latch on to the truth of the gospel again today. By your grace, we're not like the little girl who had never heard a prayer and didn't know that it is possible to talk to you. What a privilege we have and enjoy even at this very moment. So we thank you and we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.